And just as uh, you're finding that passage again, let me ask you, if you could have any job in the world, uh, you don't necessarily need the, the skills for that job, you could have any job in the world, your pick, what would it be? This week uh, I came across a British man who apparently has landed himself the best job in the world. His name is Ben Southall, he's 34 of Hampshire and he emerged from a field of some 35,000 applicants to win the six-month job advertised as just that, the best job in the world. The job uh, requires him to live on Hamilton Island in Queensland on the Great Barrier Reef and be paid £73,500 to do so. And as well as uh, the the salary, he's given a three-bedroom home, a swimming pool and a golf cart to make his way around the island. And his job description is quite simple. He is to explore the islands of the Great Barrier Reef, to swim, snorkel, make friends with the locals and generally enjoy himself. How does your job compare to Ben Southall's? He indeed seems to have the best job in the world. Now, uh, when we pick up uh, 1 Corinthians again today, uh, you may remember last week uh, when we left it off at verse 17 of chapter 1, we came across Paul's job. He gave us there uh, an account of his job description. It's quite simple. To preach the gospel. Not with human words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's job in the world as an apostle is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. If you look across to uh, chapter 2 verse 2, he says he has no other job, no more important task in this world than that. But he also says of us in verse 23 of chapter 1 of our passage, he says that's also our job as Christians. We preach Christ crucified, that's our job. But here's the thing about this job that we share with Paul. When you start to see what happens when we go about this job in our world, it starts to not look nearly as appealing as Ben Southall's job. Paul says, consider what actually happens when we proclaim that message in this world, when we speak of Jesus Christ and him crucified in our world. And you see it there in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What happens when you share the gospel with someone in this world? Well, most people will find it foolish. Or more literally, they'll find it moronic. To a perishing world, the message of the cross is dumb, backward, weak, and to be honest, just a little dull. And if you've spent any time sharing the gospel with friends or family or colleagues, you'll know this from your own experience You've grown to love the message of the cross but your parents or your children or perhaps your spouse doesn't. In fact, while they'll tolerate your faith, they find it just a little silly that you're so into it all. You love the cross but your friends and colleagues uh, who'll talk freely with you about football or the weather or their weekend or plans for the summer or their children will barely muster enough enthusiasm for a sentence or two on the message of the cross. It just doesn't grab them. I remember one of my first vivid experiences of sharing the gospel with someone was as a 16-year-old on a beach mission in south of Sydney. where I was, For some reason I joined the surfing team, not a great surfer really, but somehow ended up on the surfing team and there we were at a beach near Kiama called the Boneyard. Now it was called the Boneyard for obvious reasons. There was a good chance that if you surfed there your bones would be crushed by the experience But I've got to be honest, as as I walked up to a group of adult surfers with the news of Jesus and him crucified and uh, left pummeled by the experience, I was the only one who felt crushed 
The gospel's like that, isn't it? So often we share it and we feel it's just kind of a bit pathetic and weak. We know it from our experience and we also know it from the world at large. Uh, uh, The sort of reception the gospel receives in the world of academia is not great. Richard Dawkins in his book The God Delusion says this of the cross. I've described the cross, the, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. But then he says we should also dismiss it as barking mad. We would, but for its ubiquitous familiarity which has dulled our objectivity. The message of the cross is foolishness. And when you see this, you you come to the point where you need to ask the question, why? Why does God do things this way? Why this message? Why not something a bit more persuasive? Something with a bit more relevance and currency in our world? Why not something with a bit more oomph? It's like God asks you to walk into the world tomorrow and say the most inappropriate, ineffective, unintelligent thing. The sort of message that will see you greeted either with awkward silence or offence or just plain indifference. It's no wonder, isn't it, that it's easy for us to talk a good gospel together on a Sunday but then to lose our voice in the world. We just feel a bit powerless. The message we are called to proclaim of Christ crucified is moronic to most. You walk into work tomorrow or home today and that's all you've got. That's it. But our passage today says that is all you need. 1 Corinthians is a call to be a fool for this foolish gospel. And why? Well, as we'll see, it's because this message is the very power and wisdom of our powerful and wise God. That's what we're going to see as we look at this passage together. But before we do, we need to see this. We need to understand again what happens when our God speaks. When he speaks, there aren't any small words. There's no ineffective words. There's no words out of place. When he speaks, he hits the mark every time. His word created the heavens and the earth. His word is described as being sharp and penetrating and always, without exceptions, achieves the purposes he has for it. Did you hear that in our first reading in Isaiah 55? It says, The word that comes from God's mouth will not return empty. It will accomplish what he desires. It will achieve the purpose for which he has set for it. We need to remember that the message of the cross is God's word to this world and so be assured that that message will, with all his power and all his wisdom, achieve all his purposes. And what our passage this morning is going to do for us is it's going to help us realign our expectations of what will happen when we speak that message in the world. And we're going to see four huge things that will happen, guaranteed, says God. The first of them you see in verse 18. When we speak that message in the world, God's power and wisdom, this is what he'll do. He will divide humanity. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It's through this message that God is dividing our world. Now, if you were here last week, you may sense some irony here. Remember back in verse 10, if you look there, you see Paul's impassioned plea that the church in Corinth have no divisions. That's the very reason he's writing to them. Their divisions are disastrous. But he jolts them here. He says, let me show you a division that actually matters, that has lasting significance. 
It's as if he's saying to this church, your squabbles over which leader you prefer or which food you can eat or who does what in church, they're ones you're crystal clear on. This is the one you've become a bit hazy on, the division between life and death. Between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And do you see what causes the division? God does. His message of the cross causes this division and here you start to see the power of the message he gives us. It cuts a line right through our world, our families, our social circles, our workplaces, dividing us not over the haves and have-nots, not over the, the beautiful and the ugly, the successes and the failures, no, something bigger and more important than that, between the perishing and the being saved. You want to see how powerful the message God gives you to walk into the world with is it shapes people's eternal future. Now surely that starts to change the way we think about what happens when we speak it. When it's easy, isn't it, and I feel this way all the time, that my attempts to share the gospel are pretty ineffective. I mean, what's your success rate? When it comes to sharing the gospel with, with family or friends or, or work colleagues, so often we feel like there's no fruit from it. it. It's not really doing anything. It's easy to begin to either doubt our own ability, thinking that the power is within us and we think, maybe I just need to fix my technique, have some more clever words to use. But even if we do know the power is not with us, it starts to raise an even scarier question for us. Maybe the message just isn't that powerful. But verse 18 says, no, not so. In fact, every time, every time the gospel is faithfully spoken, it is effective. God says of his word that leaves his mouth, it will achieve the purpose I sent it for. The gospel has a 100% strike rate. Now we doubt this because we see the whole process of proclaiming the gospel in this world the wrong way around. We speak the message of the cross and we await the judgment of our friend or family member. God says the opposite is happening. It's not we who judge the gospel, it is the gospel that judges us. It's the means by which God divides and judges all humanity, marking us as perishing or being saved. Those who rejected as foolish are perishing. Look closely at the word Paul uses there. He doesn't say have perished, he says are perishing. It's a process. It's not a single moment. Reality is that uh, most of us will hear the message of the cross many, many, many times. Not once. And while each rejection of that message leaves us with no excuse before our God, our God's response to that rejection, what is it? To speak the message to us again and again and again. Now you'll know that from your own experience. How many times did you need to hear the gospel before the penny dropped, before you believed? For me, I reckon it's into the hundreds, perhaps even thousands. And there's a reason for that. Our God is patient. In 2 Peter he says he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we need to know that while every, every time we share the gospel and it's rejected, it is dividing people, it is marking them as perishing, it is also God's call again and again for them to come home. Did you hear that in our first reading in Isaiah? It said, seek the Lord while he may be found, while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy. And then there's the other side of the division. Those who believe and are so are being saved. The wonderful thing we saw a couple of weeks ago is that in this case it is a one-off. 
The grace we have received in Christ Jesus makes us holy through and through, makes us strong and blameless to the end as we saw two weeks ago and yet we are still those being saved as well. Every time we hear the gospel in this church family, God is saving us. Every time we hear the gospel, we're either becoming a Christian or so often we're being restored as Christians from from doubt, from sin, from wrong turns. And even if that's not the case, we are being kept by that gospel. The message of the cross spoken to one another in this church family is the very power of God in this place. And so if you want to see God work powerfully in your life and in the life of those around you, speak the gospel to one another. There's the first thing to expect from this message. The second one you see in verses 19 and 20 and that is that this foolish gospel is how God is destroying human autonomy. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. By this gospel, God is showing up human self-sufficiency, self-power as empty. He quotes here Isaiah 29 in which God once again sees a group of people, his people, deliberately scheming and planning something that they think is going to preserve them and keep them alive. God deliberately thwarts all that and shows them a foolish way that will lead to life. 1 Corinthians says to us here, the ultimate way God thwarts our wisdom is through the cross and the proclamation of it. And what Paul does for us next in verse 20 is he drives this point home with a series of questions to show us just how powerfully God has done this. He says, where is the wise man? When it comes to the power of the cross, how does the wise man match up? How does the scholar go? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where's the wise man? Really the wise man here is is all of us. It's it's the way we approach life as humans with a scheme, a plan that we think is going to help us make good decisions, walk in good directions, uh, that shows us what we are to value. Everyone has a philosophy, a way of living, a worldview that we think gives us power and control in life that tells us that we can shape our own future. Some of them are huge. Some of them shape our whole uh, nations and the whole globe, something like capitalism. Uh, A sort of a worldview based on the idea that if we allow the market forces to govern our economies, that everything will work out well, that we will produce the greatest good for the greatest number. Well, lately it's hard to ignore that it's not even working for the wealthy nations and individuals, is it? The financial crisis, the credit crunch, has shown just how powerless capitalism really is. And we're left with a picture of Western governments trying to fix the problem by throwing more money at it. That's how the system works. We'll just keep doing it. It's almost a picture of someone who has a gambling problem hoping the big win is just around the corner. Where is the wise man, says Paul? It's not just capitalism, is it? It's any philosophy, any scheme by which we think we can control life. Paul says, how do they stack up? Try, Try science, try rational thinking, scientific method. Yes, it can give you power to create all sorts of things. It can help us reshape things, do things better. But well before our needs end, the proud waves of science halt. It can tell me how I live and breathe and have my being, but it hasn't a clue as to why. All philosophical systems exhaust themselves at the most superficial level of human need. None of them can deal with the big needs I face. None of them can deal with the disease that's in me of sin. 
None of them can deal with the consequences that come from that, death and judgment. None of them can reconcile a man to his creator. Where is the wise man, says Paul? Now we see this and perhaps there's a a temptation for us to feel smug that we haven't fallen for one of these world views, these philosophies, but I think we betray ourselves at this point. Because we are those who trust the cross, know it is the power of God. And yet so often when it comes to the decisions we make in life or the problems we face or the values we hold or the things that we do, the gospel has very little involvement in them. And I suspect it's because in our heart of hearts we doubt it has much power to shape those sort of things. I mean, sure it can secure my future, sure it will give me joy when I look to what's coming in eternity, but but when it comes to the nitty-gritty of my life, the day-to-day, the week-in, week-out, well, life's more complex than the gospel, isn't it? And so when it comes to uh, parenting or which job I should take or troubles in my marriage or how to cope with loneliness or which house to buy or which car to buy or what school to send my children to. I I can't see how the gospel has anything to do with those sort of things. And when it comes to those, we look around for the right tool to use and we just leave the gospel behind and we, we look for something a bit more fit for purpose. But Paul is saying this is the tool by which you are to shape life. The gospel doesn't just bring us under the lordship of Christ, it teaches us how to live all life under his lordship. The gospel is far more than a ticket to heaven, far more than the thing that I get to share with unbelievers. It it affects everything. It's the very power of God. I have no more powerful tool in my life DIY kit than the gospel. And if you want evidence of this, let, let me challenge you to read through the New Testament and see the gospel proclaimed again and again and then see the vast array of issues it speaks to. Sexuality, marriage, singleness, the legal system, our approach to food, our use of money, how to cope with suffering, how to build a career, how to choose a school, how to raise your children, you name it, the gospel speaks to it. For those who believe the message of the cross is the very power of God. Paul then changes his tack and he says, where's the scholar then? Or more literally, where's the scribe, the expert in the, in the Bible? The religious person, do they fare any better? The church attendee, the the commandment keeper, the one who keeps their nose clean, the morally upstanding citizen? Well, not really if they think that's what saves them. If they assume that the power that sees them accepted by God lies in their works, their goodness. The scholar is left just as empty as the wise man. And he finishes it up with where is the philosopher which is really a summary of the previous two and what Paul is saying is you name it, any approach to life, religious, worldly, whatever, none of it comes up with the answers where life matters most. God has deliberately done that through the gospel. The third thing we are to expect when this message of the cross is proclaimed, you see it there in verse 22 and 23, is that when we speak the message of the cross, God will expose false gods, the gods that we believe in. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul shows us here the the, the checklist that the Jews use, the sort of God that they are looking for, and then the Gentiles, people like us, the sort of thing we're looking for from God. And then he shows us how God has brought about salvation in a completely different way. It's like God has seen all of these demands and he says, I'm going to do something totally different. 
Both this demand for a powerful sign and for wisdom are the basic idolatries of our world. Our our tendency to fashion a God in our own image who'll do certain things for us, who'll make sense of life for me, who'll work for me. Well, the proclamation of the gospel deliberately contradicts those demands. The Jews with their demand for powerful signs, it's, it's a way of testing God. I'll believe in God if he does this. And the Greeks, well, we're seeing them, they're the worldly wise who want a system of thinking that will help them master life. You show me a God who will help me master life, be successful in life and I'll believe in him. And again, it's an idolatry that is still alive and well in our world and even in the church. Next to where we went to church in Sydney was the biggest church in Australia. It had become the biggest church over a very short period of time, some 20 years, and it was built upon, I believe, a false god and a false gospel. The sort of gospel that the Greeks would have loved and it appears Australians too. This false gospel is not of the cross but of prosperity. Let me quote to you a a book written by the senior minister of that church. He says, God wants you to be successful in your career, in your relationships, in your finances. God has an amazing plan for your life because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. He wants you to succeed in health, in relationships, in finances because a complete and prosperous person who walks closely with God has it all. It's no wonder they're growing. Greeks look for wisdom. But there's a problem. This definition of a person walking closely with God, this definition of a blessed person excludes, well, most of us, but also, and far more importantly, the Lord Jesus. And I put it to you, whatever definition you come up with for the good life, it needs to include the Lord of heaven and earth. The life and death of Jesus Christ shows us how false this gospel is. The true God steps into our world and lives a life that is the complete antithesis of the mastery of life. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. We esteemed him not. The true gospel, the message of the cross, exposes all false gods again and again. And we need to be careful here that we don't feel smug that we haven't fallen for that false god because there is in all of us the tendency for idolatry. And so we need to test our hearts to see what within our church family are the sort of things that we, the sort of gods that we create. Let me encourage you, many of the small groups are looking at this passage this week to think through that. What are the sort of false gods that this real gospel exposes in us? The final thing you should expect whenever the gospel is spoken in our world, you see it there in verse 21. It really is the ultimate thing. Expect God to save people. The message of the cross is God declaring the way to know him, declaring the way to salvation because he knows the paths that we as humans take in our wisdom and our power are dead ends. One of the things that Elizabeth and I have grown dependent on in the time we've been here so far is our sat-nav. We should have weaned ourselves off it by now, but we haven't. And it's really, it's led us well most of the time we've been here, but there was one particular moment when we went on holiday up to Haworth, just north of here, and there we were, no idea where we were, but we were following this thing and it was steering us well and I was trusting it. It's never let me down. And there we're getting right near the destination. All of a sudden the road's getting narrower and narrower, And then we take a turn into what's more of a dirt road and I'm thinking, no, no, the the sat-nav knows what it's doing, I'm just going to 
keep going here. The dirt track turned into more of a a bridle way. There was a picture of a horse and I thought, well, again, it's not led me wrong so far so I'll keep going. And then eventually we end up in a paddock and uh, we're we're standing there, full car, the whole family, a horse rides past and uh, leans over and says, I think you're lost. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I can't be lost. It's saying I'm exactly where I should be. How can I be lost? I think that's the problem with human wisdom and power. It looks like it's the right way to go. But as God says in Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man that in the end leads to death. And here's the answer to the question we had at the start. Why this message? Why not something else? Well, God knows this is the only way to life. All other paths are dead ends. The cross of Christ is God's powerful wisdom to shake us out of our pretensions. It's his declaration that the the world's wisdom fails where things matter most, knowing the living God. The world's wisdom can put a man on the moon, it can cure diseases, it can make us faster and higher and stronger and even better looking. But it can't help us know God. It can't show us where salvation is found for all the power and wisdom we have. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so our God brings this to the world his message, his foolish message of the cross to show us where that salvation is found. The message of the cross is God saying to our world, you cannot approach me on your terms. You don't have the the strength or the nous. I approach you on my terms and here they are. You show me your wisest thought, your most powerful achievement and I will show you the most pathetic, weak thing you have ever seen and it's going to blow you out of the water. It will be wiser and stronger than anything you could muster, humanity, because it's going to save you and it's going to leave you with no ground to boast in in your own skills and your own achievements in who you are. The only ground left to stand on will be Christ and him crucified. That's what you're boasting. Let me finish by saying that there is so much in this passage, I think, for us as a church family and for us as we walk into the world each week. And let me encourage you, if you are in a small group, to enjoy uh, looking at it because we've just scratched the surface. But as we finish, let me leave you with three challenges to take into the week. The first is this, humbly rejoice that your God has saved you. I say humbly because we could leave a passage like this prideful that we've worked it out, that we know the cross isn't foolishness, that we're smarter than that, we've, we've seen the code that God's working with and we've, we've believed But verse 21 calls us on that and it says, no, this is how you were saved. You were saved when God called you. The initiative, the power and the wisdom was with him. He called you. That's what saved you. Now that pulls any pretensions we have of status and achievement about this and leaves us rejoicing in our salvation. So rejoice in it. Secondly, boldly delight in proclaiming this foolish message in our world. It is all we have And it's all we need because by this message God is saving many. And finally pray, persistently pray that God will, out of his grace, call many in our families, in our village, in this city to believe in the message of the cross. Let's pray.